0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny along with my co-host David Moser in the studio in Beijing live and in person. David, how you doing?
1: Very good. Nice to be back here in your home with your, with your animals here, your dog and cat, your four-legged carnivores as you said. And you, you always chase them out of the room, but I, I sort of, I, I mentioned to you, I'm used to podcasts where people have barking dogs in the background and cats meowing and kids crying. I think you should not worry about it. Let your animals roam freely and, and speak occasionally. Well,
0: currently they're on the sofa doing their best impersonation of victims of taxidermy, so let's just kind of <laughs> okay.
1: keep that rolling for a while. Okay. Well, I did want to ask you, we haven't talked about this, but uh, you and I were at, a, at, a, at an event on, what was it, Saturday night, I guess, in which a lot of old China hands, and I mean old China hands, back to the 1980s and, and 90s, and other people were there that I hadn't seen in a long time. And were, there were kind of reunions and a lot of backslapping slapping and a lot of, oh yeah, hi, uh, what's your name again? Those kinds of events. But uh, in talking with some of these people, I had a sense that, their sense was that China was not so bad and this uh, US-China tension had was in the midst of a thaw. Did you hear people say things like that? Or does that a sense you got from the room? You know, I think there certainly are
0: some really tentative, hopeful signs in the last week or so. But I also kind of getting a read of that same group of people, and these are people who have been in China for a very long time. Many of them are, are pretty invested here. Right. Financially, professionally, <laughs> you know, in some ways emotionally. And I think this is the group that for all kinds of reasons has really f- taken it hard that the this decoupling, this delinking, the, the decline and the relationship between China and the rest of the world, I, I think they this is a particular, a group that's really felt that deeply. And so I, I think it's also a group that is perhaps more open to any sign that that things are okay. You know, this is a, a lot of the people that we, we know in Beijing, particularly the sort of old guard, the people who have been here for a long time. They, like us, have kind of stuck it out. You know, they didn't flee with the air pollution. They didn't run away in 2015 or 2016 when it was clear, you know, the ideology here was was shifting in a kind of uh, Pyongyang direction. And they, a lot of people stayed or at least decided to come back during COVID. And so if you've made that kind of investment, if, you, if you've been that committed, uh, you want to have some kind of validation that your decision is correct, you know. And the, the flip side is this: you see a lot of the folks who have moved on, who are in the in the U.S. or in Europe, and they and they kind of go the other way. Where any wobble or any any sign that things are getting worse, they're like, "Ah, oh, see, we told you." You know, I got out at just the right time. I, I, you know, don't get me wrong; I'm not denying that people have their you know clear-headed analysis, but I do think there's a certain amount of emotion through which people view these developments.
1: I think you're exactly right. You could could compare it to like uh, the husband and wife relationship that gets rocky and they start squabbling and then there's signs of divorce, but then they they sort of realize that they don't really want the divorce. It's too messy and they actually get something out of the relationship. So you come to a new sort of arrangement where – well we don't mention the mother-in-law thing and we don't uh, you know force them to do take out the garbage or whatever it happens to be right and you have a new normal and i i, I certainly feel that in my case i'm learning not to expect what the old days were like and when, with the readjustments and a sort of recalibration i say oh actually it's not so bad i can go on this way right and i think there might be something happening at the upper echelons too, at the, even at the leadership level, where they realize that this is not going to be this rosy win-win situation, GDP, double GDP, GDP, tons of billions of dollars going back and forth. But do we really want to get a divorce? I don't think so. And so they find a way to sort of let certain things slide to to coexist in some way. And I think I think that's probably we're all, including you probably, we're all going through this adjustment where we think, is there a way we can continue to be productive and make some meaning out of this in the new normal? And I think that's probably what, you're probably right. These these, uh, highly invested China hands wanted to keep that identity and keep that dream going. And otherwise, do I really want to go back home and just retire and never eat uh, great Chinese food again, you know?
0: I don't know if I've done this bit before on this show, but your comparison of a marriage here makes me also think of Our relationship with China in terms of a relationship. You know, this feeling that me and China, we've been together a long time. And, uh, you know, other people, they don't know China like I know China. They don't know China like when no one's around. And uh, China can be really nice sometimes to me. And, and, and give me a bowl of noodles and and I and, and other people don't see that. They just see the part where China like sticks a Q tip down my throat every forty eight hours for two years. And there was a time back in the day when, when China it, it was it was so sweet. It was so nice and, and and you could really kind of feel like this would be a relationship forever. And I just know I just know if I'm if I'm good and uh, you know I, I don't say the wrong things that, you know, we can get back to those days.
1: Whoa, I hope this is not reflecting your actual marriage. You know, the the point too about going
0: Going back, and what would we do if we go went back? Yeah, I mean those options are you know. Yeah. Let's be honest. I mean you know the the day that it we've said this before, but like it it's way cooler to say like, hey, I live in China, than it is to say, hey, I used to live in China. <laughs> and it's hard. It's and to be honest, being who we are, you know, academics in China, there's a certain there is still, for now. With hope, a uh, certain marketability in that. And sometimes it's not as easy to market those skills once you leave the Middle Kingdom. And, you know, we saw a kind of a real wake up call for that in this past week when uh, one of the most prominent uh, resources platforms you know, for people, many of whom are still in China, but quite a few are, are sort of returnees, China veterans, uh, the China Project. Uh, you know, that was edited by uh, Jeremy Goldcorn And of course, Kaiser Gwal had a very big hand in all of that too. And, and many of the writers were people who had spent time in China. You know, they, they kind of suddenly folded last week for lack, for all kinds of reasons. You know, there were some reasons given on their website that had a lot to do with ideology. And I suspect there may have been other reasons too that had to do with funding and just the viability of the business model. And that kind of, for somebody who lives in China and every once in a while thinks like, what would life be like with... Internet. I, I wonder what, what what then what would I do? You know, great. I have internet and I can watch sports in prime time. But uh, counting my McDonald fries that I'm making in Chinese just to keep my language skills sharp, because X guy from China doesn't really sell, uh, doesn't really have that that zing that it used to have. So that, that's kind of a bummer. Now so let's <laughs> let's go on to the topic that we can uh, of, of the day, as it were. One of the other announcements that was made last week on Twitter. Uh, from the account of uh, Taizu Zheng, which is a pretty popular account, uh, we can link to it in our, uh, in, in our show notes, it said that the, act, the uh, Qing History Project, now for, for people who aren't familiar, one of the things every dynasty does is write the history of the dynasty before. Well, the PRC is writing as a major project to write the history of the Qing dynasty, which is the dynasty that preceded the last dynasty. And it was Renmin University, People's University was involved of course, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences was involved, and hundreds of scholars from around the world were involved in this project. And you know, some figures, including the tweet, suggest that something like two billion renminbi have been spent putting this massive history of the Qing Dynasty together. Well, according to this tweet, and there, there's no documentary confirmation. And I, and and as you'll probably hear in a moment, and understand why the whole project has been. Quote, put on ice as higher authorities have deemed the draft it produced to be politically unacceptable. And the tweet goes on to say, quote, failing to honor the perspective of the people, which uh, in Chinese-speak means, what the fuck are you people doing? Specifically, uh, the project was, quote, overly influenced by the new Qing history. Now, we're gonna talk about that today. What, is this new, what does this mean by new Qing history? Why is it such a uh, boogeyman? for many historians in China. And you know, the the other thing that the tweet mentioned and this was a bit of a odd claim given that many of the people, scholars from China who have been involved in this project have themselves also been very uh, firm critics or at least pushed strongly back against some of the conclusions some of the research, uh, some of the analysis that's been done by overseas scholars who are associated even if they don't call themselves that. With this new Qing history, and we'll talk about what does it mean to be a, a new Qing historian, and why that's such a, a problematic thing
1: uh, in the PRC today. Maybe you should uh, also just mention the fact that that confused me a little bit before we beginning the podcast. That there is this, you know, official official government writing of the of the previous dynasties' history, but there's also the fact that that the world of you know China scholars is is very uh, sort of transparent. <laughs> and uh, interlocking and the you know lots of people got involved in it uh, not as actual uh, official participants but but as just scholars who were looking at this this what they saw as lots of revisionist history and writing articles also pushing back or also just examining in a meta way this, this effort that was under, as uh, this project that was go- in, underway, this historical project that was under, undergoing, this topic of the new Qing dynasty, the Qing dynasty history, the new Qing dynasty history, is kind of bleeds through into all kinds of areas where, where people would, know, not just here in China. And that's something that I was thinking, they can cancel the project or put it on hold, but the discussion goes on. You're still going to have academics uh, all over the world still even looking at this very fact and, and making opinions about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this refers to a government project. This isn't—they're not shutting down the study of the of history of the Qing Empire, uh, but they—but it is a a major uh, moment in that so much time, effort, energy, uh, you know, people have spent their careers working on this, and for in for it to be apparently suspended uh, because it, it didn't meet the standards of historiography in the PRC in 2023 is is even by the standards of historiography and PRC in 2023, a little bit shocking. And for those of you who have just reached your subway stop and you're going to turn off the podcast in a moment, let me just give you the, 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 the gist of it. A lot of it has less to do with the kind of information or the kind of analysis that's being used. It has a lot more to do with simply how history is understood to, frankly, work. And I think that the challenge right now, is that there are some very ideologically charged politicians and their allies in the academic community who see history as being a teleology that must inevitably, inexorably, and in no way deviate from from legitimizing a present situation, and that is the political control of the Communist Party and China's territorial claims as interpreted by the Communist Party whatever we think of those two things the the challenge is that history doesn't work like that that history is often about multiple perspectives possible pasts possible presents you know the road not taken and questioning undermining sometimes assumptions and of course to make a teleology you need to have a lot of assumptions and if you start pulling you start undermining those assumptions start questioning those assumptions it becomes like a jenga puzzle that slowly you know loses its structural integrity
1: yeah and that's that's kind of the crux of the problem there is that you know chinese the, the chinese history after 1949 which is which means after 1949 they had to basically reappraise all the all the sorts of frameworks that had heretofore been active in sinology, the task is is not to assemble scholars and, and to come up with all different sorts of frameworks and examine it from an academic, scientific standpoint, scientific historicism, but to come up with the official story that makes them look good. So this is problematic, because uh, first of all, uh, it's 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 laughable that you know most people who know anything about history knows it's futile to do that because history is is one of the most mutable, changeable, controversial domain academic domains that there are there, there there are intrinsically many different viewpoints but the other reason is you is, is you're not going to be able to get all the academic academicians to co- cooperate on this because that's that goes uh, you know opposite of their training right but there's another problem i think that the reason that i don't know what i don't know if this is true or not but i mean in the current atmosphere uh and this is since you know who uh, ha, has started to you know put a lot of pressure on the academic wait wait did you just Voldemort Xi Jinping? <laughs> yes he who's he whose name cannot be cannot be spoken yes right all right go <laughs> anyway <keep going. laughs> right now they're undergoing a lots of revisionist history pr- projects right one of them emerged just recently. It's it's been in, ongoing, but they just recently released this hilarious T- CCTV program combining Confuci When Marx meets Confucius, Confucius and Marx meet, and the whole the the uh, whole ideological agenda is that well, you know, actually Confucianism and Marxism have a lot in common. You know what? Despite the obvious differences, uh, Confucius's uh, emphasis on class distinctions and hierarchy, and the Marxist uh, agenda to uh, il- you know abolish class distinctions and so forth, right?
0: Well, I mean, I I, I think an early draft of that had both Chengdu Shio and Li Zhao in the background repeatedly no punch, no. Re- no repeatedly punching themselves in the head because oh. if Confucius and Marx are perfectly compatible, then.
1: Their well, that's entire the thing. stick is gone. That's the thing, is the contradiction also is between the party and the history of the party – and the animosity that the May 4th movement including Chairman Mao had for confucianism they've got to do- deal with this and if you want to get into that i well we can we can put this in uh, a link in on the podcast website because it's really worth seeing this 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 tv show it's hilarious but they but you know they do try to present chairman mao as a as a preservationist someone who valued traditional culture and these may may 4th movements were hot-headed and so forth but you have that you have you have this sort of melding of confucianism a way of of linking Traditional Chinese culture with Marxism, and they've been doing this. Uh, I've been asked to uh, to appear on talk shows. The Xinhua she has contacted me and said, "We want you to come and talk about traditional culture and how it arises from you know uh, from from or how it fits in with Xi Jinping agenda." And I refused to do that. But but there is that on, ongoing. There's also this attempt to sort of reconceptualize democracy. So they can actually, with uh, unabashedly, say this is one of the twelve core socialist values, because well, it's not one person one vote democracy; it's this thing called whole process democracy. So they're so they're engaged in these kinds of, of revisions and tweaks in the history of the, the party and its basic principles. So in the s- seeing as how all this is going on at the same time, I think it's very likely that that people were looking at this new Qing project and thinking this is a mess and we've said so much about this you know in the past 20 years or 30 years and we've downplayed so much i love that there was a quote from uh, or david Bandersky, who's on china uh, media project said a wonderful quote And like in the in, in the context of chinese politics uh, there is always some degree of forgetting at a time of remembrance so whenever we're trying to remember a, a fallen leader or so and so there's in addition to the remembrance there's also perforce kind of forgetting that must take place in order to to, to maintain the, the the status of the person that we're grieving for right and i think i think what's happening now is probably the the academy is so flummoxed by by all this how are we fitting this in and also with the pushback not only from from chinese academics but of course the, the massive pushback from other historians uh, in the United States and elsewhere in the Anglophone sinology, right? And everything is open these days. Everyone's reading everything. All the all other scholars work in translation. And I think, I don't know, I could be wrong, but this could be a time when they want to make put a stop to it, reevaluate it, and forget what the message is going to be. I also should should point out, China, they, they say, what do you call it? Shooting yourself in the foot? Because, um, as, as you said, they, they want this a uh, fixed sort of uh, narrative that they can, they can they can you know keep uh, present as the official narrative and, and make that part of, of the canon, right? But the problem is whenever a, a significant event happens or there's an era that they're embarrassed about, they have two choices. One is is they can engage in this revisionist history and tell the story that they want or they can just choose to ignore it. And say it didn't happen or we we don't talk about this right the best example is 1989 they had a choice and they experimented right after that with the with the other option which is well let's tell our own story let's say it was uh, the students were created they killed a lot of soldiers and and no one died in Tiananmen square and all this kind of thing right and that became so problematic and so untenable with all the video footage that was out there in the whole world right they made the other decision let's just not deal with it. Let's not talk about it, right? So now the new Qing history, it's the same kind of problem, right? Either we push this forward and we really try to make this the canon and we make the new textbooks that tell the story, or let's maybe just drop it and let's, let's not mention it anymore. Because they can do that. They can make a story go away in the textbooks, in the media. If they want to make a story go away, it goes away. Um, so that's a problem, right? So they've, so they've, they've made this problem and then they've got to figure out how to solve it.
0: Along with a certain revisionism is also a pruning of alternative
1: revisionism. Yeah, pruning and, is a better word, yeah. Not forgetting, but pruning, yeah.
0: And, you know, of course, Ian Johnson uh, just published a, a great new book, Sparks, uh, which I reviewed on the now recently defunct China Project. Uh, but the book itself is about underground historians who have trying as best they can under great pressure from the state and its uh, entities to try to recover some of these things that were forgotten or have been somehow, you know, the memory has been morphed into something more palatable for consumption, but in fact, by doing so, distorts the lived reality or the trauma of people who are involved in these events. So, I, you know, it's a, I highly recommend that book.
1: But well, also, it just to quickly add something, uh, and many people have said that I'm not the one, the first one to say this, but because of, of this systematic sort of revisionism and the control of the the, the hiding or subverting or or Negating certain historical events, the the task or the duty of writing modern Chinese history sort of falls on other people. It falls on Western scholars. It falls on other people, or it falls falls on the the group that that uh, Ian Johnson's book is about is the unofficial historians who who you know, come hell or high water want to want to record these events for for historical you know to have a historical record. So that's another little uh, problem that they presented for themselves. If if you're not going to present the history that's going to survive the millennia, who's going to do it? And in that case, you're you're putting that onus on s- scholars that don't share their their historical framework or their or their historical trajectory.
0: Yeah, I, I want to talk about that uh, towards the end because I, there is a, a recent report that looked at like who studies China and why, right. where is the. Where is the knowledge being produced about Chinese history? Where is it coming from? With the most cited and most influential uh, histories about China being written? And I think the answer will surprise a lot of people. But I, I would like to, if, if we could, kind of get back to this notion okay. of the, the new Qing history and just kind of quickly define what we're talking okay. about here. And uh, a lot of this goes back, you're talking about the May 4th movement. A lot of this goes back to that era. You know, you have scholars who were trained um, not just in China but they also were trained in universities overseas. They're applying some new methodologies to the study of history in China and one of the things they keep coming up with here coming up against is this the trauma of the Manchu conquest of China you know how to explain you know how China had fallen into that state even before it had been humiliated by the foreign powers and attacked by aggressive foreign powers And one of the ways that many of these scholars kind of work their way out of this emotional cul-de-sac was a, you know, came up, emphasized the notion of sinicization, that yes, the Manchus conquered us, but we really conquered them, because of course, later on, they all became Chinese. And later on, you know, that was kind of an accepted, in some ways was an accepted narrative for a long time, that the success of the Manchus in the, who ruled the Qing Dynasty, a lot of that was because they had, unlike some earlier conquest dynasties, wholesale adopted Chinese culture and become Chinese quicker and more efficiently mm-hmm. than
1: previous groups. Which the current th- uh, leadership or the the says this proves the superiority of Han culture that it's so dominant and it's quickly you know uh, captures the imagination of these.
0: There's a there are I mean and it is not necessarily an incorrect narrative, um, but one of the one of the things that happens later on in the 20th century is historians in China, but a lot of them outside of China, start looking at the Qing Empire from a variety of different perspectives and different sources, looking at Manchu language sources, Tibetan language sources, you know, looking at it from the perspective of inner Asia, not just from China out, but inner Asia in. And what does this look like? And they don't necessarily say cynicization is completely wrong. They complicate that narrative and they say, well, it's not completely right either. And this is where we get into this kind of knowledge problem, which is that many of the when you have an emotional attachment to a particular argument and it's part of your identity, it's not enough to say that it may be partially right and par- it may be only partially right, or it's only it's not completely wrong. It has to be a hundred percent right. And if you start chiseling even a little bit away at it, you're you're gonna undermine the whole thing, and that's gonna be a huge problem for me because my identity is wrapped up in this like this particular piece of knowledge. And so the New Ching historians, and, you know, again, this is a name that has been applied to scholars like Pamela Crossley, Mark Elliot, James Millward, Evelyn Rosky, and others. I mean, these, they don't necessarily refer to themselves as New Ching historians. In fact, some of them are quite aggressively reject the title. But their arguments, you know, many of them beginning in the 1990s, question the notion of cynicization, questioned that the Manchus did not completely simply change their whole style of rule. In fact, that the Manchus in some ways created a new style of emperorship mm-hmm. that was part of the reason they were so successful. And the the challenge for s- scholars in China has been, and, and you know, there have been some pretty um polemical, heated, angry uh responses. There was one in like 2015, 2016. By a scholar named Li Juting, who was actually working on the National Qing Dynasty compilation, like this project, right? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he said the whole thing is academically absurd, politically does damage to the unity of China, and he wishes to expose its mask of pseudo-academic scholarship.
1: Uh, what, who, who, who is he criticizing here? He's criticizing the, these the scholars. Western, yeah, he's criticizing the, these Western James scholars, James Millward and all these people. Yeah, okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and it was a whole, you know, whole broadside that he he wrote, and was in- incredibly. In some ways, critically unprofessional, hmm. but it was angry, and and I, and I read it, and the first thing I thought it was, wow, this has really touched a nerve, and of course, because a lot of it has to do with identity. There is also another part of this too um, that there is a feeling among many scholars in China—not everyone, but scholars in China—that this idea of studying the Qing, first of all, as an empire reduces the culpability of the foreign powers in their own imperialist aggression against China. Because, of course, the Qing is just one empire playing the game. And, of course, that's not necessarily accurate either because, you know, the Qing is an older type of empire. It's not necessarily the same kind of imperialism that we see when capitalism and empire come together, like in the the 19th and early 20th century. The other part of it, too, is that if the Qing is an empire... Does this mean China is then just part of this empire? And what does that mean? And we talk about the territorial claims of places the Qing Empire conquered, like Taiwan, Xinjiang, Tibet. Uh, there's a, a, a scholar named Zhonghan who is, you know, one of the really uh, important Qing scholars in China, and he's argued that what the New Qing History does, and this is this is his word, like, This is not what they. I, I I don't. I disagree with this, but this is what he. This is what he says. It's as if the Qing Dynasty was the owner of apartment building in which each unit was occupied by an individual ethnic group and the Han Chinese were just occupants of one unit, no more entitled to the whole than all the others. And you can, under, I think anyone who has an even cursory understanding of China and then just how sensitive they are about the issues of the frontier, the territory, and how this all came together, could understand why a scholar like Zhong Han is kind of focuses on that one thing. But David, what I want to ask you about is this, I think some, not all of the problem, not all of the problem, but some of the problem here is that when we're writing about these issues in English, we throw around terms. Well, we we use only a couple of terms, I should say. China, Chinese. To describe what in Chinese, the Chinese language is a huge number of different terms that have radically different meanings, but that in English get translated, you know, only in a, a couple of ways. I was wondering if maybe you know you could talk a little bit how that happens and what
1: are some of these terms and why this causes so much confusion this has been in flux this is another one of these uh, terminology uh, aspects they're in flux uh one of the biggest ones in in the past couple few decades really is gradually shifting the focus from the 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 uh, nomenclature from from zhong zhonghua renmin the people chinese people renmin to a zhonghua minzu the reason that this is uh, increasingly or not increasingly this officially they're they're making this change is because they, this minzu is a slippery term because we also have in, in english the notion of a nation and a nationality but but a nationality can you be if you know we the two of us are Americans so that's our nationality but it can also mean like an ethnic identity and nationality like a minzu the notion it's it's in english we kind of can make a a pretty clear distinction but in chinese it's a little more blurry as to what is a nation and what is a nationality in terms of a a a race the 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 notion of race people nationality uh, and citizens and all these sort of things are sort of blurry right and uh, they don't translate uh, well, or the, and the, even in the English terms are also a little bit blurry. So the problem here is: Do we want to stress the individuality and the, the different ethnic identities of this big thing that we call the PRC, right? Or do we want to de-emphasize that and say we're all Zhonghua Minzu, right? We are just the people, the na- the nation, the nation of China, right? That We are all members of this nationality. We are all of this, this, China is our nationality. Not that we, not that we negate or uh, deny the fact that there are these ethnic minorities. We, in fact, we, 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 we promote them, we, we, uh, we approve of them, we help them, we love them, right? They're, and so we, we're not s- saying that they aren't uh, sort of different from the Han, right? But w- what we are saying is quit thinking in those terms. Think of yourself as a Chinese, right? Now, what do you mean by Chinese? This is where this, this comes right. It's very easy to because the government does that for you also. But to say you know all uh, oh, the the Chinese people, who, who does that include? Does that include? Does that include Xinjiang? Does that include the the, the minorities of the south? Does that include Tibet? Right. This this is a question that you. It's so easy to just say the Chinese people or the Chinese nation or China just without even addressing that question. But in Chinese, you sort of have to address that question: whether you use Renmin, the People's Republic of China, who are the people? And you use Minzu. Uh oh, now we're not just the people and could be a mixed group, but a, but a nation that has this unity, right? It doesn't really matter what eth- ethnicity you are you. You are Chinese. It's re- it's a little bit revisionist, but it's all pu- is trying to pull towards one thing, which is unity. And it, I could my book, uh, A Billion Voices, talks about how they use the languages. Also, they want to. Uh, you know, maybe preserve some of these languages, to, but but to to make everyone a speaker of something called Chinese, which they now call Putonghua. that's all part of that. We want you speaking the same language, believing the same things, not believing the the religious, having the beliefs, religious beliefs that we find threatening, and so forth. The whole thing is about unity.
0: Yeah, no, I I get that, and I think there's also an aspect of this whole debate which sometimes isn't talked about as much when Westerners look at the critique of the new Qing history and the critique of the scholarship, which is there's a historical background to scholarship on the Manchus that resonates very negatively among many Chinese scholars. And that is that a lot of the earliest attempts to emphasize the Manchuness of the Qing emperors in the Qing empire came from Japanese scholars in the 1920s and 1930s, who are you know using that as a way to argue that Manchuria was a separate entity and to legitimize the puppet state of Manchukuo now that's you know in the west that's kind of a historical footnote but of course in China that's a very traumatic experience that's right <laughs> and so it is understandable that scholars in China would be sensitive to anything that looks like what you know, these scholars did in the early 20th century, not just from Japan either, also from some Western Western scholars who do the same thing, you know, trying to de-emphasize the unity of China, and of course that's a very that's a it's a hot that's a very touchy rail, a third rail here, and I think that's that's part of why sometimes the polemics can seem so shrill because they are coming from a very emotional place. Your notion about the the idea of ethnicity, identities, of course, very unstable things. and terminology kind of gets us into a, another uh, historical argument, historical battle, historical war uh, from the past uh, well like from the past year, but but kind of came to a head this past week when uh, in France, a you know a history museum in Nantes opened up a exhibition on Genghis Khan, and it was a huge hit. People crowding around, everyone was lining up for it. It It's called Genghis Khan, How the Mongols Changed the World. Now, the backstory for this is that they've been trying to do this exhibit for a few years now, Um, but in 2020, the collaboration that the museum in France had with the the Inner Mongolia Museum in China uh, broke down because the Chinese side Said, well, you know, we we have a few we have a few notes on your show, and the French side's like, okay, well, well what do you object to? Well, uh, this this thing about how Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire, yeah. Uh, well, we don't want you to use the words Genghis Khan, Mongol, or Empire anywhere <laughs> right. in the show, and that does present some challenges. And of course, if you go to some of the museums in Inner Mongolia, and they tell you that. You know, Genghis Khan was actually Chinese, which I'm sure would have come as a huge shock to the Song <laughs> Dynasty. But be that as it may, this is another example of how this uh, obsession over keeping the teleology whole, keeping pruning any possibility that there may be another way to look at it other than our way of looking at mm-hmm. it, is as you said, it, it is counterproductive. You know, mm-hmm. we talk we talk all the time about how China wants to tell China's story. Well, you know, the Mongol Empire isn't really necessarily China's story, but China's a part of that story. Well,
1: China's story is very complex.
0: <laughs> that's the thing. That's the problem. It's like the, the complexity of it is the beauty of it. That's right. The complexity of it, the complexity of history is why historians love it. Exactly. And if you take history and you reduce it to kind of boilerplate pablum, politics, politics, pabulum, propaganda, what have you. You know, you lose the ability to have that story, that narrative resonate with an audience that's not an internal audience who is already predisposed to want the story a certain way.
1: Yeah. So I have a question for you because I know some historians and you probably, I'm sure you do too. You know, I don't know any Chinese historians, Chinese. I'm talking about Chinese People in, in academia here, but this Qing, this new Qing Dynasty project was, uh, you know, got state funding and everything. It seems like the people on board with that, or the people writing the articles, are either fellow travelers or or, or loyal apparatchiks or whatever. But they, but they also that any divergent or um, opposing opinions would not be allowed, or wouldn't be published, or people wouldn't dare write them. Right. So you're talking about a project here that's very top down, very mandated by the state. And very restricted on, on the framework that they have to use, right? So that's not the... We know, you and I know that academicians, people who study, who are scholars, they see it. They understand the problems of politicizing history, right? But so are all these people that you're, that you're quoting who are objecting, these are a small group of scholars, right? Or, or a subset of the scholars that that are engaged in the project. And there must be many others that are waiting... Before, to you know write it on their deathbed to write their real story on their deathbed or, or go overseas and, and take part in some academic project over there right there must be a schism in the in, the, in academia here right well i think i mean just like it's like any you know academic ac-
0: academic community there's a wide range of opinions i think the challenge of course now is that the space to, as we talked about so many times, the space to express divergent, right. uh, diverse opinions is, is rapidly narrowing. And I would imagine if you are in charge of a major history project that's been going on for years, and you're trying to get it through, and what you're looking at ahead of you, it's like one of, it's like the cle it's like this, the cliched scene in almost every science fiction movie taking place in space. You know, the small spaceship is like trying to escape, and they just have to get out to like. You know, just beyond those rapidly closing obstacles oh. that are coming together and they tilt the ship to the side and they just barely scrape by and they shoot forward, you know, just to get just as the things close down behind them. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a, if you're doing a project like this, you're seeing up ahead those two obstacles coming together and that space, that gap through which you can get through going narrower and narrower. And I, I think the challenge for a lot of academics, even those, as you said, who Frankly, you know, probably have a lot of sympathy with the national narrative, or at least don't have a lot of sympathy for some of the counter narratives that are coming out of other corners of academia. the The, the walls are closing faster than they can keep up. As you know, we're not really going to know. I don't have any inside information about what happened uh, with this project, and I don't think we're going to get anything other than like rumors and scuttlebutt generally, yeah. which would yeah. be hard to confirm, but.
1: That there is there is this conflict there is this tension between academic academic freedom and uh, the political tr- priorities. If you're thinking in terms of the Chinese government, they have a very practical sort of goal, which is st- stability, unity, lack of large angry people protesting. The problem for them is uh, we want to sort of mute or attenuate these differences and these possible uh, like social friction and make everything everyone feel like they're part of the same country they speak the same language they eat the same food they you know have the same sort of ideological framework that, that this is this for them is kind of an existential issue it's and and it's it's it goes back uh you know way back one of our earlier pro- podcasts we interviewed uh, gina and tam you know who had written this great book the whole point of that of the of the of the language unification project was not just because the a practical one that they wanted scholars and people to be able to communicate with they traveled around china it also had a political goal which is we want everyone to feel like a nation should only speak one should have one established language not these dialects that are that are around so the, the whole point of the putonghua push and you see it in the promotions, you know, is speak Putonghua, be a patriot, the lover of country. If you speak Putonghua, then you're being a good Chinese boy, right? A little girl, right? So the, so the whole thing is about unification, feeling that we're all part of the same thing. And China, that's just not the way it works. <laughs> you can, there, no matter how much you love a country, I mean, there are pl- plenty of Americans uh, who, are, who are, you know, not uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but who have lived there and they love the country but they still you know, cling to their identity, rightly so. And China has this same problem. and it's, But it's for them, it's more of a, a problem of, of control, what they see as a peaceful, harmonious, unified China, which is the u- ultimate goal.
0: I think, I think some of this comes also from a place of frustration that so much of China's story, as, on, as accepted by the rest of the world, has not actually is not coming from China, and and granted some of this yeah. is because of the way it's being done here, but I think also part of it is is a a fundamental problem of academia, which is that anglophone scholarship on many subjects tends to dominate when you start looking at how often it's cited. You know, English language materials are often cited more than others. We, there's a really a paper was just released, and and we'll put a link to it on uh, the show notes. Uh, by a scholar named Christian Hunryo, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. Apologies to all my French friends. But the, uh, the article was, Who Owns China's Past? America's Universities and the Writing of Chinese History. And the argument you know, is that uh, after 1949, a lot of the materials that were written about Chinese history that were often cited and were often seen as the influential ones came from the United States. In fact, a lot of them came from only a few places, you know, think Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and some others. And that, you know, this you know, created a body of knowledge about China that dominated how people thought about China and understood China. And, of course, if you're in China, it's not that necessarily you think what's being written is wrong, although you might have you might have you might challenge some of the analysis and the assumptions, of course, and you may think some of it's wrong. But it's that it's, it's being produced somewhere else. And, you know, why America? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's produced in English with the backing of these large institutions. You know, there are plenty of places in the world that have great sinologists. We think, of course, of Japan, which has, you know, uh, obviously has a history with this that's not necessarily all that wholesome. But, you know, in the 20th century also has quite a few amazing sinologists who tend to publish in Japanese. And that doesn't always break out into the wider circulation, although, we were talking before the podcast that both of us in graduate school had to do our requisite few semesters of Japanese language and right. the idea that we would one day read a Japanese article in the Japanese. But right. I can understand why this is frustrating. Because I mean, you think about this is an issue of the legacy of, of colonialism and imperialism, that part of imperialism was the production of knowledge about places and how mm-hmm. you, that knowledge that was produced created images of those places that then in turn justify right. imperialist attitudes towards those places. Right. Not going to take anything away from that. That is absolutely something that happened. But on the other hand, I do think that that, and I do think that's part of what we're seeing here. But I also think there's also a push where a lot of the really good Chinese scholars are going to the U.S. for school. And yeah. I don't know about you, but when I was in when I was in graduate school, in our small Chinese history cohort, half the students were from China. Yeah. You know, studying in California. Yeah. And you know, there was nothing odd about that. I, I, I should say. I didn't think anything odd about that at the time, but sometimes when I say that, when I tell people that here, they're like, "Well, how did they go to California to study Chinese history?" And
1: you kind of look at them like, "Cause maybe you know, I mean, pretty good place to, try to study Chinese history, maybe." Yeah, it, this is another topic, but I mean, it go, it goes along with what we're talking about. Was is is not just uh, that that Western, mostly English language, anglophone publications and. Set the the tone, set the set the agendas for re, for research, right, or the way, or the way to frame these things, but also would 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 select areas of research that that almost didn't exist. They created new areas of research, or research areas that don't exist in China. When I first came here in, uh, in the eighties and early nineties, when I was working with the Academy of Social Sciences, uh, I was curious about foot binding, and all I could find was a couple of really good books, one by this guy Van Gulik and some other people that had a sort of a, a very comprehensive book on foot, foot binding uh, that was published in English, translated into English. And they said, you know, where's the equivalent book in Chinese? I would ask them. They said, oh, I don't, I don't think we, we have that. It's not an area that we're encouraged to... To do, I mean, if you say I want to do a book on foot binding, they're going to say, "Why would you want to do that?" You would be discouraged, right? Oh, the Great
0: Wall—that's another one. Yeah, like, that, the Great Wall. A lot of people, a lot of Western writers write about the Great David Wall. Spindler. Yeah, like right. David Spindler, and, yeah, David Spindler, William Lindsay, but there's not a there's not really a huge like academic community focus right. on Great right. Wall studies. You
1: go to you go to the Association of Asian Scholars convention, right? And you 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 look at it. You go to a uh, a a talk or a section on Hong Lomeng, on the Dream of the Red Chamber. They're totally different. In, in, uh, the Hong Xue in the Dream of the Red stu- changes, uh, Chamber studies in in the U.S. or in in overseas is totally different than the study here. Their 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 frameworks, what they study, the way they look at the book, are totally different. And that that's partly because those those academic scholars come from a very different background. The Chinese have their own you know way of looking at it that's entrenched. And they're two very different ones. So there's, there's not only difference in the way they look at the same topic, but then there's wholly different topics that are there that, that are huge in, in the West and that don't even exist here. Yeah, no, I
0: think that's a, that's a good point. It's telling, too, that uh, the place where I, I went to graduate school, you know, UC Davis, one of the specialties, because we had some very, very, very talented faculty in this particular area, was in the history of women and gender in, you know, the Song and also in the Qing. And so a lot of the scholars who were there were studying that specific topic. And, you know, I'm not saying that's not something you can't study in, in China, but it, especially these days, a little you know, problematic. Yeah. A little more problematic. Well, we do have some uh, links in our show notes uh, I do want to share with people. For example, we'll, 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 I'll put a link to uh, a translation of uh, Li Jirting's Broadside from 2015 and a response to it. I think David Bandersky actually wrote a little bit about it as well. Zhong Han uh, published a book in 2018. Uh, the English title is A New Look at the Fundamental Characteristics of the Qing Dynasty History, focus on rethinking the views of the new Qing History School of North America, which was a point-by-point point rebuttal of what he felt were the worst excesses of these uh, others, of these scholars who were looking at the Empire in this particular way, and I, I the book is out there, but I, I'm going to on the show notes I'll put a link to a, a, a review of it um, by a professor from Shandong University. I think helps if you don't have time to read the whole book. And then uh, actually a really good essay that I I I was reading uh, this week uh, by a scholar who's at Allegheny College, uh, Professor Wu who uh, wrote an essay talking about uh, the um, New Ching History, Dispute, Dialogue, and Influence, which I, I thought was also a pretty balanced look at the subject as well, and, and in some ways kind of also uh, gently pushes back, uh, you know, re-pushes back, if we will, against some of the criticism by Chung Han and others. And of course, we'll also have links to the uh, kerfluffle, kerfuffle, the dust-up over Genghis Khan in France, and I'll, I'll link also Uh, to the article on Who Owns China's Past and the sort of statistical analysis of where a lot of the writing is coming from. And finally, if you haven't already picked up a copy of it, we'll also put a link to Ian Johnson's uh, new book. And uh, so long as it's still online at the China uh, Project, uh, my review of it as well. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me here in the studio.
1: Thank you. I learned a lot from this podcast. I'll have to go back and listen to it again. (laughs) Well, absolutely. In fact, you can do the editing.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you all very much. And join us again later for another edition of Barbarians at the Gate.